Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show firefighter and paramedic Jason Friedman. So in this extremely powerful conversation, we discuss a host of topics from Jason's journey into the volunteer fire service, his path into paramedicine, losing his parents, his own very powerful mental health story, anger management, the Shatterproof program, ketamine therapy, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback. I do love reading your feedback and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for other people to find. And this is a free library of almost 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Jason Friedman. Enjoy. Well, Jason, I want to start by saying, firstly, thank you so much for reaching out. And secondly, thank you for taking some time and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. No, thank you. It's, uh, it's actually quite, quite an honor and a privilege to be here uh, speaking with you. Well, like I tell a lot of people, you know, this is just two firefighters having a chat. So, uh, you know, the, the honor and privilege is mine as well. So right. <laughs> very first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you this evening? Uh, right now I'm in my, uh, my apartment in, uh, in Boynton beach. And, uh, actually you said a somewhat of a, uh, a significant day taking my, uh, 16 year old out, uh, driving lessons, uh, which I'm glad to report that I'm back safe and sound. <laughs> <laughs> I got a 15 year old that turned 16 and he, on his birthday, he got his permit and was like, all right, we're driving. So he is hell bent on getting his on his 16th birthday. So I've, uh, I've been great. investing a lot of time to make sure that he's safe. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, She's actually turning 17 in August and uh, she's had her permit since she was 16, uh, but really hasn't had the desire, or the motivation to want to go out there, which, which you know, after my experience with her today, uh that's okay. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't mind her waiting. Uh, but she's doing good. She, it, it was, it was actually fun taking her out. Now we're going to go into your timeline, your story journey into the first responder profession. I'm going to jump the gun just for a second because of this topic that organically came up. One of the hardest things for me is the world of driving from a first responder's perspective, because I mean, I think a lot of people think that the worst things that we see are in the fires, but the reality is I think most of our, you know, catalog of horrors come from the roads. Um, And I am kind of appalled at how fucking terrible our driving test is in Florida. I mean, having come from the UK and then taking it here, you know, I thought it was a warm up for the real test. Uh, And, you know, we basically drove around the block parked you know drove into a parking space and the guy high-fived me and was like congratulations i was like oh okay that's why so so many people die in this country now i get it but with that being said and all the horrible things that we see it's very hard to kind of cut the apron strings 
when you have to trust your child to go out. So what has been your whole kind of lens on the fact that your little girl is one day going to be driving on her own and joining some of the lunatics that we know exist out there? Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely, um, pretty scary. Uh, she is my, uh, third of fourth, uh, fourth, you know, four children. Um, so my two older children, uh, one's turning 25. So she's been driving for about, you know, six, seven years. And my son who's 20, almost 21 has been driving about four years. Um, and yeah, each time they, they get a driver's license, uh, you know, it's like a, a license to kill um, in, in both you know directions, unfortunately. Um, my oldest daughter, actually, she's she's a very good driver. Uh, she's very patient. She's very, you know, she's she's not one to, to speed, no road rage. Uh, you know, I know she doesn't, you know, at least I, I'm assuming she doesn't text and drive and stuff. But she's very, uh, she's very good. She's very responsible. Um, my 20-year-old... Um, a little bit on heavy on the foot, a little scary. Uh, and I've driven with them a couple times <laughs> and I think that's probably going to be a while before I drive with him again. But fortunately he hasn't been, uh, you know, he's in one accident, uh, stupid, but, uh, other than it, it's scary. It's like, you know, you, your, your kids, um, you know, it's like the next step of trust, um, in their life. It's, it's a huge step. You know, it's one thing, you know, dating and so forth, and obviously drugs and, and stuff that goes on at school, bullying and all that stuff. Um, and not that you take it for granted, but until you actually realize that they're going to be driving a vehicle. And I told my daughter today, I said, you know, realize that this is this is a machine. This is something that will kill. And whether it's you or somebody else, I said, you have to look at it as, you know, you're, you're the safest thing on the road and everybody else is, is horrible. Um, she's scared. She's nervous, which is good. But, you know, I think the scary part of it is, um, you know, just building that confidence and, you know, not forgetting things. Um, it is different because like when I was driving or when I started to drive, my dad took me out and I think he had like a, I can't tell you, like 1984 uh, Honda Accord, which was like a little toy box. It was like a, it was like a, uh, uh, you know, go-kart. And it was, you know, it was fairly easy to drive and stuff, but it was basically put me on the road drive. And, you know, nowadays, um, I think it's just with the technology, uh, the things that come, the distractions in the car, the things that, you know, we took for granted that we didn't have such as backup cameras, such as, you know, you know, those types of things, uh, you know, warning systems, which you would think would make it safer, but sometimes from, you know, I think a kid's perspective, it's a, uh, it's a hindrance because they pay more attention to that than they do of the traditional, keep your eyes on the road, always look into your left, your right, rear view mirror, your speed and so forth, which we became accustomed to because that was what we had. So I think it's it's definitely a challenge these days, and especially ninety five, uh, you know, ninety five being the most horrendous road in the country. Um, it, it's scary, especially things that I've witnessed and I've seen, and a lot of it has been basically because of stupidity, um, road rage, 
obviously the texting and driving and stuff and, and, and obviously driving under the influence. Um, and unfortunately with that, it, it seems like in our profession that we see the ones that are driving under the influence come away with, with nothing, minor injuries. It's, it's what, you know, it, it's what they do uh, to kill others or damage others and destroy lives. So uh, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's nerve wracking. So I'm not, uh, I'm okay with her not being in such a rush, but listen, she'll, she'll get it over time. Yeah. Well, I think the, uh, the fear or healthy respect of the magnitude of what you're doing is to be encouraged that like my son's become a, a good little driver. I mean, he's still sitting next to me, but he's very calm, very patient. But I told him, I'm like, I want you to stay driving like you want to now you are driving well, you know, but some toolbox pulls up next to you and revs his engine let that fucker go you know right. someone you know is yeah. riding your ass worst case pull over let him go by and pull back behind him again but it just blows me away because we watch the planet get shut down for ultimately tens of thousands of people um you know and obviously that eventually got into the the six figures and and beyond but i mean Initially, it was on in in that magnitude, and we lose forty thousand people every year on the roads. So we have something I think it's I want to say either side of five million accidents. Forty thousand die. I mean, hundreds of thousands probably uh, have life changing injuries after that, and psychological injuries, and yet zero discussion on let's improve the standards, let's make the test harder, let's educate the why behind blinkers, distance, etc. And so, you know, it, it's interesting how. When it fits the the politicking, they're all about let's have the counter on the bottom of the news channel, and you know let's talk about this twenty four seven. But you know, I guess I guess deaths on the road just aren't cool enough to address. And I think to the uh, the age, you know, I'm sure I'd get a you know an argument started in regards to raising the age for uh, for drivers, um, just because that you know at sixteen years old they don't have that. You know, full capacity of really understanding um, the full magnitude of what they can do uh, with that car. And, you know, there's the immaturity, there's the things, you know, again, especially like with technology, you know, they're constantly on their phone. They're, uh, you know, which is fine. That's that's the way that they, they get their information and so forth. But it's very hard to now say, okay, you get into this vehicle, we take that away from you. It's, it's hard. It's like a, ha a, you know, a hard habit to break. So I, I think that it would be, you know, maybe to me, it'd be okay. I would be okay with uh, them raising the driving age to maybe, you know, 18 years old. You know, if you're considered an adult at 18, then maybe that should be a responsibility as an adult. Is it going to make much of a difference? I don't know. Uh, but at least it's a place to start and to possibly look at it. I mean, God, we, you look at the insurance, you know, that it costs to, to, to cover your kid. And that's, you know, that's without an accident. And, and that, that the reason is because there's a high probability that they're going to have an accident. And that that's why the, the insurance premiums are, are so expensive with, uh, uh, you know, young drivers. So, uh, you know, that would be, you know, education. And, and obviously, I think, like I said, the uh, you know, raising the age would be something they think of look into as well. Yeah. Well, the UK is 17, which um, I think would be a good kind of happy medium because, you know, at 17, a lot of our 
graduates are 17 or just about to turn 18 so you know you'd have that that uh um independence and be able to go to college work whatever comes next but the standards of the test i mean that to me is where you really make the difference because in the uk usually certainly when i was younger people were passing on like second or third try that's how hard it was that's how stringent it was you know and it was right all kinds of skills i mean you know parallel parking and um, reversing around a corner and hill starts and you know roundabouts and you name it they're educating you on everything that you may come across because that's what you need to be taught i watch roundabouts put in america and it is almost co- if it wasn't the fact that people are getting hurt it would be funny but it's not funny because people are getting you know hurt and killed but to just take two seconds to go google how do i use a roundabout if you don't know how to you know what I mean? So this this is where we're at. We're in just like, well, you know, give them the keys and they'll work it out. Oh, they do. Yeah, sometimes on the side of the road, sometimes smash through the windshield. They work it out, right? right. But it doesn't end well. No, I know. And I was actually, we have roundabouts in my neighborhood. And and today we were talking about roundabouts and how they work and stuff. And, um, you know, because she's, you know, she was with a friend of hers that obviously did not know the rules of the road um, when it came to roundabouts. And, and I can't like, <clears throat> excuse me, even with driving around my neighborhood and going through the roundabouts myself, I can't tell you how many times that I'm like, oh, God, like, you're such an idiot. Like, you know, as you're going through and you're in the circle, somebody's coming out. And so, like, it's so simple. But yet, yeah, I totally can understand. I guess, you know, like I told uh, you know my daughter, I'm like, in fact, like in England, I said, you know, these guys are going around roundabouts. It's like a, you know, it's very common and it's very thorough. It's very smooth. I said, it's because it's a way of life. I said, here, it's just diff. They put them up and there's no explanation other than, you know, a yield to the you know, to the car in the circle, which half the people don't even realize. What does yield mean? You know, it's going to just slow down a little bit. But, uh, yeah, it's it's a little uh, little ridiculous at times. Yeah, well, interesting perspective. Thank you. So let's get to uh, your childhood then. So tell me where you were born, and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings. Sure. Um, I was born and raised uh, what we refer to as upstate New York, uh, Albany, New York, the state capital, uh, about three hours north, uh, directly north of uh, New York City. Um, I was the third or or the youngest of three boys. Uh, My two older brothers are nine and 12 years uh, older than myself. So I guess, um, you know, I was the proverbial, uh, the accident, I guess you would say, or as my brothers would say that I was the mistake. Um, But my parents, uh, you know, have been married or were married until their deaths. Um, my parents were together for, they were married for 50 years, uh, together for 55 years. Uh, my dad was a, uh, an accountant, um, and, you know, specifically a CPA. And my mom was, uh, his administrative assistant for, you know, the better part of 30 years. Um, so when growing up, I basically, you know, became somewhat of an only child by the age of, you know, six and really nine years old, uh, because my brothers had both, uh, had both, uh, going off to college and since then had, you know, obviously started in with their, you know, building their own lives. Um, so life was actually, wasn't too bad. Um, I, I wouldn't consider myself a, uh, a spoiled brat. Um, but I definitely enjoyed 
probably more things than or, or had more opportunities than uh, both my older brothers, just because they were both uh, within the same age range, you know, three years difference. So whatever one got, the other one had to get. Uh, when I came along, you know, like I said, I was, you know, the, the last one was nine years ago. So they're, you know, uh, I, I guess I, I got a lot of opportunities that, that they didn't have. And uh, it, it was cool. Um, you know, grew up a, a very normal, uh, <laughs> typical Jewish family with me being the, uh, the exception to the rule. Um, both my brothers are uh, successful um, you know, in the medical field. My oldest, my middle brother is a radiologist uh, in Connecticut, and my oldest brother is a, a CPA, like my dad, uh, in West Hartford. And he's also in the music industry, uh, which does a lot of uh, accounting with uh, professionals, both you know, uh, artists as well as uh, other types of musical backgrounds. Uh, merchandisers, manufacturers, and so forth. Um, but we had a, 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 you know, I had a good upbringing. Uh, you know, nothing, <laughs> I laughed because my brothers and I talked about it. You know, like back then it was the norm. You know, we didn't, we had our own typical dysfunction, you know, some yelling between my parents and so forth. I think there was more of a change of direction as I got older um, as far as who the disciplinarian was. I guess when my brothers were growing up, uh, my mom was the uh, was really the the one who was the nut job who was uh, you know handing down the punishment. While my dad was the the one who was chilled. Uh, by the time I started pushing the buttons that my brothers didn't push, I think it it kind of took a turn. My dad, you know, was the one who was the uh, disciplinarian, and my you know my, my mom was the one who was chill. Um, I was also the guinea pig for my brothers. I was the one who, uh, you know, if they wanted to test the waters, they would they would send me to do it, um, especially with, you know, some of their friends and, and whatnot. I remember, you know, one example was when I was, I think, like four years old. My brother told me to, you know, flip the middle finger and give it a kiss, and that meant I love you. So he proceeded to send me out to the living room where my parents were having a party and tell everybody, you know, good night and that I love them. So here I am walking out in the middle of the party, flipping the bird and kissing the bird, you know, to everybody saying good night. Um, that didn't last long until my father got a hold of me, but you know, realized <laughs> where it, where it came from. Um, yeah, other than that, uh, you know, growing up in, in Albany was great. Uh, it was a very conservative, you know, somewhat political area, obviously being the, the state capital. Uh, there, you know, I grew up in a, you know, a multi-ethnic background or area. Um, we had, you know, Irish, Italian, German, uh, Greek. Uh, you know, all in, in my neighborhood. So everybody was just, you know, it's like a melting pot. And, and none of those ethnic uh, values really played any role um, in regards to my childhood uh, as far as, you know, having issues with anybody. It wasn't like the, the stereotypes, the typical stereotypes that are thrown out there uh, never existed, you know, with me growing up. I had friends of, of all, all types of ethnic backgrounds. I kind of meshed into 
you know, everybody seemed to mesh into everybody, um, which was really good because, you know, I had a really good childhood, you know, as far as with friends and, um, you know, getting into sports and stuff. There, there was a lot of, you know, great times. Um, you know, as I got older, I was involved in a lot of, uh, you know, sports, mostly baseball. I played baseball since I was like six years old, all the way up through, you know, to high school. Um, and, you know, I played a variety of other sports, tennis, golf. Um, didn't really get into, you know, I got into swimming a little bit, but that only lasted maybe like a year or two. Um, but I really enjoyed that camaraderie of being part of that team concept. And, and obviously I, I think that's uh, kind of, you know, one of the variables that drove me into wanting to do what I do, you know, for a living. Um, you know, the other aspect of it, um, you know, growing up in Albany was the time that I had, because of being that only child, I had a lot of opportunities to spend really good quality time with my parents, um, you know, especially my, you know, my dad. And my dad was, you know, like I said, he was an accountant. So from like January to April, he was busy with uh, the tax season. Um, so, but he he was always there. My both my parents were always there for sporting events. You know, with you know any of my baseball games and so forth, they were always there. Um, might not have been really involved as far as uh, grooming me uh, within the sport. Never really, you know, I never played ball with my dad. Um, you know, never had a catch with him. That was always my middle brother. My middle brother was the one who was athletic. My oldest brother was the one who was into the music. So I got the best of both worlds from both my brothers, the love of music and, and obviously, you know, with baseball. Um, but I remember going to, you know, a bunch of, uh, you know, sporting events with my dad when he was a member of, he was a member of the Masons and a couple other organizations. And there were nights that, you know, he was in a bowling league. And I remember like when I didn't have school the next day, he would take me with the, you know, with a group of his friends, go bowling. And after bowling, they'd always go to like the diner and have, you know, something to eat afterwards. And it was just cool. It was, it was, it was really good times. Um, you know, basketball events, we went to a bunch of basketball games together in high school. And it was just, you know, it was that, that bonding time um, that I, I really enjoyed having with, with my dad. Um, and, and this ties into a lot of what has developed over the years. Um, you know, I, I feel as if that my childhood was, I thrived on attention. Um, and, and I want to make that clear that not the look at me attention. It was, I enjoyed the time spent with, you know, especially my father, you know, I enjoyed that attention. Um, and, I, and again, because I had the fortune, you know, the, the, the fortune of, of being able to have that because my brothers, they had their time with him, but it was always in twos. With me, it was just me. And, uh, and, and I really enjoyed that. And as we grew, you know, as I grew up and I was in high school, there were a couple games that we went to. And I remember one event, um, it was a basketball game, my high school was going to like the state champion uh, championships. 
And, uh, you know, I was sitting with my father, a bunch of my friends had come up to me and they're like, Hey, we're sitting down over here. You know, and my dad's like, go, you know, go, go sit with them. And I didn't, I was like, no, hang out here. And, you know, I learned later on that that was probably one of his proudest moments. Um, because he was in that same position years ago with his own dad and he made the decision to go and spend the time with his friends. And it was something that he had regretted. And, you know, it was, you know, something I, I guess, you know, from what he says, that was just, you know, it was a proud moment to know that, like, you know, even as I got older, it wasn't the, um, the cats in the cradle proverbial, you know, growing separate from your, your father or away from your father. Um, so, you know, that was, I guess, my, for the most part, my, my childhood growing up, um, you know, I, I, and it's funny, I shouldn't say funny, probably poor choice of words. Um, I would, I played basketball, uh, for an organization. I'll remain anonymous on that. Um, and I did have the, uh, an inappropriate experience in which I was inappropriately touched by a coach and it wasn't anything major. Um, well, you know, I, I guess I minimize it. Um, it, it was an inappropriate, uh, you know, sexual touch and it was a second and I kind of like brushed it off, you know, for the most part. Um, I never really thought much about it. Um, it, it, it bothered me a little bit, but you know, I joked around about it, um, you know, with friends of mine, you know, because they all knew this, this particular coach. And, um, in only a couple of years ago, did I bump into a, a friend of mine that I had played basketball with during that time frame, And I jokingly said to him, because we haven't seen each other in probably a good 25 years. And I said, you know, the coach's name, I said, Hey, did he touch your penis also? And with that, the, it's like a, like I flipped the switch and his eyes started to water up and I'm like, I'm like, what the fuck did I just say? You know? And then he proceeded to tell me that he was sexually molested by him, uh, on a number of occasions. Um, and it came out fine. We came out at that time that a friend of ours, um, who I knew, you know, I played basketball with him. He was on the team, um, had killed himself five years prior. He hung himself, um, because he was sexually molested by this asshole. Um, so, you know, did it have an effect on me growing up and, you know, looking back and saying, is this, was this part of, you know, is this a variable in my mental health issues? I don't think so. I can't say for for certain, but I do know that I remember like after that event took place, I never said anything to anybody. Um, you know, until obviously two years ago, I told my, my brothers um, and some, you know, close, you know, you know, friends of mine about it. And, you know, it, it did go to, you know, I can't really talk about it, but there it was, the statute of limitations were, were far beyond it. So um, there wasn't much that I could do criminally. Uh, but from a civil standpoint, uh, 
it was a non-disclosure, so I can't really talk about it. But that was the only compensation, I guess, for what had taken place. Um, and it, it doesn't erase or take care of what had taken place. Um, and it wasn't me, so so to speak, that I was really pissed off about. It was more about what had taken place with my friends um, because I was fortunate for, I guess I shouldn't say that's a bad word to use. My situation was anything like what they endured. Uh, mine was like less than a two second thing. Uh, nonetheless, it was wrong. Um, but I didn't realize what the magnitude was. And, and I, the only regret I had was not saying anything back then because had I had said something, maybe it wouldn't have happened to them or wouldn't have gone the distance that it did with um, a friend of ours that had killed himself. Uh, but I do remember having some behavioral issues thereafter, um, you know, striking out. I remember, you know, getting into arguments with my parents or something and, you know, I punched a couple holes in the wall. And you know, I just thought that was just part of the growing up process. Um, you know, but looking back at it, I, I think maybe that had something to do with it. I, I really don't know. Um, but nonetheless, after, you know, that had taken place, you know, I graduated from college or from high school. I went to, uh, university of Hartford, uh, for my freshman year, um, didn't really do well there. They suggested that I take a semester off and reevaluate myself. Um, so, you know, I had I started a fraternity and, you know, was dabbling, you know, smoking pot every single day. And so it was like, all right, maybe, uh, take a look at another school. So I chose, uh, I went to Western New England College, which is now Western New England University in Springfield, Mass. Um, and I ended up going there, got my bachelor's uh, business administration, majored in marketing. Um, and I graduated in, uh, in 1991. Um, thereafter, I was contemplating, you know, what, what I was going to do for my career. Uh, my girlfriend at the time, uh, her dad was in the garment business in, uh, in New York City, and that kind of uh, got me interested in doing something with either manufacturing or textiles and so forth. So I ended up moving down to Westchester County, just out, you know, just north of New York City. Um, and I started in uh, as a sales rep for a, a textile manufacturer. And that that lasted maybe a year. Uh, I just I really wasn't into it. Um, I didn't like being in an office. I didn't like being on the road, selling things, trying to haggle with prices and trying to, you know, it just wasn't my cup of tea. Um, I did at that time, uh, started getting interested in, uh, in volunteering as a fireman. One of my friends that I uh, went to college with, I remember in that county was a, a volunteer fireman. I remember him talking about it. I remember seeing pictures and stuff. And, you know, we had talked, you know, you know, recently. He's like, you're right, you know, close to um, Hartsdale. Uh, I was living in White Plains, but on the border of Hartsdale, which is a, a small little hamlet. Um, and they have a career volunteer department. And, uh, so I went and I, you know, I looked into it and I ended up joining 
they sent me to the fire academy, which wasn't as extensive as a career firefighter, but it was basically comparable to like a firefighter one in order, you know, in Florida, in order to be an interior structural firefighter. So I started doing that and I really fell in love with the, just that camaraderie, that, that fellowship. Um, you know, I, I really didn't know what the value of the brotherhood was um, until I started in that service. You know, growing up or being predominantly in a, uh, a white collar world, um, I didn't know, you know, other than the team sports that I played in, really what was, you know, what was uh, great about being part of the service. Um, so I started doing that. I was, you know, as well as bouncing back, you know, bouncing from a full-time job uh, to another full-time job in electronics, uh, surveillance, sales, which again, I really just wasn't liking. Um, but in the meantime, when I was doing the volunteering, I met a person who had, uh, you know, talked to me about becoming an EMT and cause we were just like first responders. We only had like CFR training and he said, listen, the state will pay for it. If you volunteer for the ambulance organization, which was in Rockland County, next County, North of the city, uh, or next, you know, adjacent to, uh, to Westchester, uh, the opposite side of the, uh, the Hudson river. And, I was like, okay. And this gentleman that kind of talked to me about it was a father of a, a close friend of mine's girlfriend or whatever. Um, and he just, he took me under his wing and I took the, the EMT class and I started riding Friday overnights with him. And he became like my second father. He was the head of the, the ambulance corps. He was, you know, I guess a, a legend in his own right. Uh, and we just gelled. You know, he literally was like, you know, a father figure to me. And I just had the, the great, you know, greatest of all times riding with him. In doing that, I started really enjoying being a, a volunteer EMT. Um, but I, I, I don't know, I just, I wanted more out of it. So, I, you know, I was like, okay, you become an EMT, you know, you start thinking to yourself while you're becoming an EMT, I'm going to save lives. You know, I know it's as cliche as that, and it sounds cheesy. Uh, and, and yes, did emergency play a role in it? I'm sure Johnny and, and Roy did. Uh, but I, I really did think that it was I was going to have an impact on somebody's life, and uh, and that was a really cool feeling. Once you became an EMT, you suddenly realized that you don't do shit. <laughs> it's the paramedics that do the that do the work. Um, and I don't mean that negatively. I mean, I, I jokingly say that they, we all play a, a valuable role in, in taking care of somebody. But really, when you're an EMT, you realize that the paramedics are the ones that start the, the IVs, they get the medications, they're able to, to, to read EKGs, all these things. It's like you, you, you're thriving for the next level. Uh, in New York, it was very competitive to go to paramedic school. Um, back in those days, it wasn't through the colleges. It was through the hospitals. There were hospital uh, paramedic programs. Uh, very competitive to get in. You needed at least a thousand, uh, uh, you know, thousand hours uh, in order to apply to the paramedic program. Paramedic programs there were only nine months or 10 or 12 month programs. Uh, they're not like the three semesters or two year process. It was all jam packed for a whole year. Um, and I was able to 
get into a program with only six months experience because my instructor for DMT was a very uh, awesome, uh, very well-known paramedic in New York City. And he had some influence in getting me into the paramedic program in Westchester County. So I ended up going there, uh, became a paramedic. Um, and during the time I was in training, I got um, hired in New York City, uh, started out as an EMT uh, in the Bronx for um, Our, Lady of, uh, Our Lady of Mercy Medical Center in North Bronx, which is it's been changed since I left. I think it's part of the Montefiore system. Um, but that was like the, you know, the eye opening experience of a lifetime. Um, I had done a couple rides in Brooklyn and that really got me turned on to wanting to work in the city. Uh, it was far beyond anything that I could imagine, especially in the Bronx. Um, you know, even though we're in the North Bronx, we went into the South Bronx and, it was uh, it was incredible. It, it was I had some really great partners. Um, I had some really good times. It just it was amazing. We saw everything. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, the, the shootings, the stabbings, uh, the fires, uh, you know, but also really good medical calls. Um, it just really motivated me to want to do this, and it was awesome. I, I had an incredible time. Um, after I, you know, I was working in the city and I became a paramedic, um, it was very, uh, normal up in New York, uh, to have a variety of per diem jobs. You, you might have like a, a full-time gig, um, which I did, uh, initially after getting out of medic school, working for uh, a company called Empress, which handled, it was a contracted, uh, for the cities of, uh, Yonkers and Mount Vernon, um. So I was working my first medic job there and that place was awesome as well. Just, you know, a lot of experience just North of the Bronx. So very similar uh, areas and, uh, and what it had to offer. Um, but I was also working per diem up in, uh, in Rockland County as well for an ambulance company uh, or a paramedic company. And that covered like about a third of the, uh, uh, the, uh, of the County. And, it was just about that time. It was like around 97. That's when I, I started to um, get those memorable calls. Um, you know, when I was an EMT uh, volunteering, I remember my first cardiac arrest. I remember his name. Um, I remember, you know, and it wasn't the arrest. It wasn't the arrest that bothered me. It was um, after we brought him to the hospital and he was pronounced. And then they once they cleaned him up, and they allowed the uh, the family to come in, and the, uh, the the wife and the daughter. And you hear him, you know, yelling his name. And the sad part was that the he had the same name as my dad. And so as I'm hearing this, you know, like I'm envisioning, you know, like I'm I'm, I'm putting my dad in 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 that place. And my dad hasn't died or he hasn't died yet. Um, they just, you know, I had to walk out and I, I didn't have any, I don't think it had any detrimental effect to me. I, I wasn't having nightmares or anything, but it was just, I think it was my first emotional experience um, in dealing with, you know, death and, 
the consequences uh, or the aftermath of death that it has on uh, on the family. And uh, so that that was you know kind of my first experience. Um, in '97, I was working as a, a, a paramedic with a, what's called a fly car system. We had two paramedics, and we would branch off, you know, on calls. So, you know, my partner, we had a call. I dropped my partner off. If another call came in, I took the vehicle, responded to the second call, and the ambulance that my partner would be going to the hospital with would drop him off, or we'd intersect somewhere after. So, my first, uh, it was like my solo uh, call that came in for a it was like a two or three year old uh, pedestrian struck and there really wasn't any information other than uh it said the child was was struck while backing out of the driveway so i was like okay so it wasn't a high speed type thing you know so you know kind of i guess you know routine so i'm responding I'm, i'm about 10 minutes out the ambulance corps gets there and they get on the radio. They tell me that um, she was run over by the car backing out of the driveway. And the EMT on scene was like, you know, you know, should I put the, the helicopter on standby? Because in our county, the trauma center was across the river in, uh, in Westchester. So it would have been like a 40 minute drive versus, you know, 10 minute flight. So I said, well, you're there, make the call. I go, so put them on standby if you want them, have them, you know, launch. So they did that. Um, I got there and, and here's this three-year-old girl um, who reminded me of my niece, um, who is roughly around the same age, my middle brother's daughter. She had um, these curly blonde hair. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't anything gory or anything, you know, traumatic to look at other than she had a white shirt on with tire, you know, tire marks on it. Um, and she wasn't in arrest, um, but she obviously was in, in some great uh, distress. So I ended up having to, you know, intubated her. We got an IV on the kid and the helicopter landed, took over and took her to the hospital. Uh, two weeks later, she had passed. Um, but during that time she had a brain bleed, uh, seizures, uh, you know, you know, complete organ failure. Uh, you know, she had flail segments, collapsed lung. I mean, just horrible. Um, and it was like a, a, a freak accident. Uh, kid was in her car seat. Uh, her aunt was the one who was driving. Uh, she put her in her booster seat. As she was backing out, the kid, unbeknownst to her, was able to get out of her seat and open the door. And obviously back then, you know, I don't know, I can't remember the, the age of the car, but it was obviously probably before, you know, these child safety locks and so forth. The kid was able to open the car door. And by the time it registered as she's backing up, she drew, you know, she uh, backed up over the child. Um, but I just, you know, it's, you know, those images of, association and and i think and not that i think all of my trauma uh that i've gone through has been personal um and when i say personal i don't mean that you know the connection between me and the patient um 
it's not so much the incident, it's the personalization of the incident. It's what, you know, the surroundings of the event and what took place and things that occurred thereafter or prior to and so forth that, you know, makes it more impactful, I guess, for lack of better words, in my, in my mind. Um, you know, the following year, you know, and I, I didn't have, I, I don't remember having any kind of, you know, flashbacks or, you know, horrible dreams and stuff, but I do remember becoming callous. I do remember becoming almost, uh, as my one partner had said to me, an arrogant fuck. Um, like compassion fatigue. Yeah. Yeah. Like this is bullshit. Like, why are you calling me? Yeah. I was being an asshole hands down. Um, you know, like especially in my area, uh, at that point I was now working, uh, at the New York Presbyterian in, uh, in Washington Heights, which geographically it's just, uh, the, the Northwest section of Manhattan, uh, along the, uh, George Washington bridge area that leads into, uh, New Jersey. And uh, the majority of my area was Dominican. Um, in in their culture, they typically call nine one one or they go to the hospital for bullshit. Uh, in other words, like the sniffles, the colds, and so forth. That's you know where they typically go to uh, to take care of the you know that kind of stuff. They go to the specialists or the clinics for their cardiologists or their endocrinologists and so forth. So it kind of made sense because most of my <laughs> great calls or valuable calls as far as, you know, cardiacs, uh, strokes and so forth, we're all coming out of clinics. And I didn't realize this until I had a partner that was part Dominican and would explain to me. So I started having a, you know, a better understanding of, uh, in, in that area. Um, but I remember I, I was, I'd walk into somebody's house like, this is nonsense. Like, why, are you, why can't you just, Walk two blocks to the hospital. What am I going to do for you? I'm a, t you know, a taxi. And it just, you know, I just, that, uh, I guess for whatever reason, that was just my mindset at that time. And I, and I didn't realize why. I never really thought twice about it. Um, of course, you know, you're, you're kind of like in denial that there's anything wrong. You think that that's just the way it is. Um, I had... When working per diem in the Bronx, I had a off-duty motor or off-duty police officer that took a spill off the uh, the Bronx River Parkway in his motorcycle, and I just so happened to be outside the uh, emergency room entrance to our hospital. Uh, my partner was actually inside with the stretcher transferring the patient over, and I was just cleaning up. And this guy comes up, you know, on his motorcycle, and he's like, "You need to help me." He goes, "My buddy just." dumped the bike like a block away and I could actually see from where I was standing where where he was laying and there was a couple other motorcycles um, next to him and I'm like I gotta get my part he's like come on man he goes he's he's fucked up he's really fucked up he's a cop so with that I jump in the, you know my ambulance and or it was referred to him the bus um, and I go over there and I'm telling dispatch what I'm doing However, the repeater system is down, so nobody can hear me other than the dispatcher. So my partner doesn't even know where I am. So I go down there, and this guy's fucked up beyond belief. Um, 
you know, I had to secure his gun. I had to, you know, take his helmet off. He ends up having like bilateral flail segments. He's, uh, he's got a brain bleed. He's, he's just pelvic fractures shattered. He literally got launched off his motorcycle and slammed his head into the curb and just everything went forward. Um, and here I am by myself and I got units coming, but the closest unit that I have coming is from the South Bronx because it was a busy night. So I had nobody coming to me for about 10 minutes. Um, we had a patrol boss um, in the area that did end up coming on the scene. I have no stretcher to put this guy in. Um, I'm intubating the guy there on the road and the hospital is like a hundred feet down the road. And it's not a trauma center. It was a level two trauma center, but because Technically, I had no other choice. I had to take him there. So I literally took the backboard. The patrol boss showed up, you know, jumped in the, you know, the driver's seat and took me to the, to the hospital and uh, we brought him in and so forth. And I shit you not, it must have been 20 minutes later that I walked out of the emergency room and there was like a, a sea of blue lined up in the back of the, uh, the hospital from all over there was you know uh, brass all the way to the top that were at the emergency room um i didn't even know how the call got out and so forth um but i remember having to take him up to westchester um to the medical center up there and he was uh taken off life support like the next day um you know, it's just, you know, the, the personal aspect of it was, it was just, you know, he ended up, you know, working in one of our local precincts and I, I knew of him. I didn't know him personally, but I've seen him on jobs and stuff. And it's just like, you know, it's, um, they are, you know, they're, they're part of our service. They're, you know, they're, you know, them intimately without really knowing them personally. You see them, you're with them, you're there to do a job. Their their job is law enforcement. Our job is EMS, and but we all work together, and it it becomes very intimate at times, um, and, and that kind of really fucked me up a little bit. Um, thereafter, is just there was no explanation, and then I, now I start looking for explanations for things, um, and then fast forward two years uh, to 2000 and it is um, Sunday afternoon in June. Um, actually it's the 18th of, of June uh, and it's father's day and I'm not married at that time. Um, my girlfriend who is a mother of two, um, you know, I really didn't, you know, didn't celebrate father's day, obviously. Um, so I was working in New Jersey and a car, I think it was like in the afternoon, a car had come off one of the highways and slammed into a Starbucks, uh, you know, storefront window and pinned up a gentleman that was sitting in the back of the, uh, the Starbucks on his computer. And, uh, we got there just as about there, uh, just at the time they were about to lift the car off of him, uh, with the airbags and he was conscious. And, and I've, become accustomed to this because of all the subway jobs that we would do. Um, people were conscious and until we put the airbags and lifted away the, uh, either the subway car or the car itself and so forth. And because of the tamponade, they would just exsanguinate and die. Um, 
And just the look on this guy's face, you know, just he really wasn't coherent, but he was conscious and, and he was just mumbling stuff. I couldn't really understand. And as soon as they lifted him, you know, off, he, uh, he goes unconscious. Uh, back then we were using the mass trousers uh, or the shock garments, the anti-shock garments. And um, we got it on him, got him in the back of the, uh, the ambulance. And I don't know, like with two minutes, I had pulses. Um, two minutes of CPR, we had two, you know, obviously IVs going and we had pulses back and I was like, all right, this is a good thing. And we had a blood pressure and this is the first time in my career that, you know, when you go to traumatic arrest, you, you stay in traumatic arrest. Um, you know, you're talking about, you know, one hundredth of 1%. Um, so we got into the hospital and unfortunately as with all the cases, they take the, the pants off. And they die. So I find out later, um, while I'm at the hospital, that, and again, uh, remain anonymous because it will make sense after I tell you this. Um, gentleman happens to be from California. Um, he's in town visiting his father and, and mother for Father's Day. Along with him is his uh Two children, two young children. I think they're like nine and seven, a uh, boy and a girl. Uh, his wife didn't accompany him uh, because she was back in California, uh, three or four months pregnant uh, with her third child. And he was a very well-renowned um, physician, uh, professor, Um in like astrophysiology and so forth. And his father was a very, you know, uh, established or well-known physician in in Manhattan. Um, And all this is happening on Father's Day. You know, here's a a father of two, a father-to-be and a son. uh, And a father losing a son. Like how, how much more fucked up can you get? Like, and again, it's not what took place. It's not what I saw. It's the personalization from it. I don't know this guy. He's 40 years old. And it just doesn't make sense. And that's when I really started losing uh, belief. That's where I started losing my faith in, uh, in a lot of things. My faith in God and my, you know, um, started questioning my abilities, you know, what did I do or what didn't I do? Could I have done something? Um, and it's, you know, the fast forward to this past January, I guess you can call it cyber stalking, but, um, I ended up locating his wife and, um, and I called her and the first thing out of her mouth after I, I told her who I was, um, we had to go back and play a little phone tag initially, but when she called me, I explained to her who I was and she goes, do you have PTSD? And, um, I said, yes, I do. And I said, and I've, I've had it for probably about 22 years and I really don't know why I'm calling you. Um, other than to let you know that your husband died peacefully um, and that I was there with him 
and we did everything that we possibly could. And we went into great detail. I mean, she was asking me because there was some, you know, she had a good understanding of what took place, how much damage was done or how much, you know, what the extent of his injuries were. Um, And I wasn't forthcoming initially until she said something. And then I said, do you want me to tell you? And she's like, just, you know, yeah, let me know everything. And, you know, obviously because she was a physician, obviously she knew a lot, you know, all the medical stuff. Um, but talking to her was like a weight off my shoulders. Um, she had texted me, uh, maybe like a month after a conversation, thanking me, um, thanking me for, you know, being there for her husband. And, you know, that meant the, the world to her and her children appreciate everything that I, that I did and are glad to know that, you know, somebody who was there with them you know, reached out and, you know, I guess put their mind at ease for, for lack of better words. Um, so that was, that was probably the most, I would say the most significant uh, incident that had taken place, which most people who know me would think that nine eleven was, was going to be the most um, impactful, um, which, you know, obviously came up the following year, and um, it did. I lost six friends of mine uh, that I worked with in, in all capacities. Two were from my department. Um, two were from Port Authority uh, PD, who were also paramedics. And two were firemen uh, that were also uh, paramedics for our hospital. And uh, in each of them, again, the personalization. Um, I worked with with uh mario who's from my department a week you know week before 9 11. it was my first time ever working with him uh he was an emt really nice guy just very chill had you know wife kids uh, young uh his partner that day uh keith was on the phone with his father at the uh at the center and couldn't talk to him uh said i'm busy and that was the last that he heard, you know, from Keith. Uh, the irony to it was that Keith didn't know that he died as a paramedic um, a week before he had taken his paramedic exam. And like the day after he died or was killed, uh, his paramedic card came in the mail. Um, one of the firemen, uh, you know, Kevin Pfeiffer, um, whose brother Joe was the battalion chief that during the filming of the documentary uh, from the, the, the French guys, that was his brother um, who was the initial BC on, uh, on the first plane uh, that hit the, uh, the North tower. Um, and inevitably felt as if that he sent his brother to his death because he told him to report over to the, uh, to the South tower prior to the collapse. And yeah, 9-11 had its impact. I mean, again, you know, going through six memorial services followed by six burials upon recovery, part of the recovery. Um, it was just, you know, I always, you know, I laugh about this because of the irony. It was the worst day of my life. And it was the best day of my life. Um, 
obviously we all know why it was the worst day. You know, I, my parents didn't know where I was. Uh, my wife at that time, uh, she was teaching, she was a teacher. She was at work. I had taken her kids to school and came over, um, as soon as, you know, everything started happening. They were calling me, telling me to get in the city. They closed all the bridges. I was living in Jersey. Finally made it into the city. Um, as I'm crossing over the George Washington Bridge and watching the South Tower collapse, I think it's a nuclear device going off and I'm sitting there going, what the fuck am I getting myself into? Um, it was like Escape from New York, you know, like that old movie. It was like Snake Plissken. I'm like sitting there going, where, where the fuck is Snake? Um, it was quiet. You couldn't hear shit um, except for the fighter, you know, the fighter planes buzzing around every once in a while. But it was 78 degrees, not a cloud in the sky, and it was a picture-perfect day. Um. It, it, so that was like the best day, you know, like that's what, you know, when I say it was the, the, the worst day, the best day, um, it was the best day as, as far as the, the most beautiful day that I can remember temperature wise and the feeling of being there. Um, and then again, it's like, there was no asshole left in New York or in New York city. Everybody was nice. Everybody was doing whatever they could for another. You know, there, there weren't any horns being, you know, <laughs> blown as somebody was walking across the street in their way. There was nobody saying fuck you to anybody. It was just the whole world like kind of came together. Um, and every time I stepped out of ground zero, you know, over the next, you know, God knows how many weeks, um, the roar of applause um, or applause that you would get from people just standing there and thanking you and just wanting to be there for you. It was, it was truly amazing. I remember coming home from work one day and it was, it was up in Washington Heights and there was a memorial that they have um, right outside one of the parks, Fort Trine Park and all the candles and vigils uh, were set up there and I'm driving home and I have my uniform on. I'm in my car, my private car. Um, or personal car brand. And some guy like walks in front of my car and like stops and like just looks at me. Like, like I'm thinking, all right, he's gonna pull a gun and just shoot me. Like, and he looks at me and he points a finger at me and he gives me a thumbs up and he like slaps his heart, like, thank you. He goes, Thank you. And I just stood there and I just I'm at the traffic light and I'm crying for no reason. I'm just crying. You know, it's, it was that moment where you start realizing, okay, you know, there, there is some good that comes from this. I don't know what it is, but, you know, that appreciation you get from somebody who actually took the time to say thank you, you know, without even knowing me, without knowing what I've gone through or went through and so forth. Um, so so 9-11 was, uh, was obviously, you know, had its impact on me. Um, and it was thereafter I started really having a lot of memories, um, flashbacks, agitation, the hypervigilance, staring in the sky at every fucking plane that, that flies by. Not thinking it's going to crash, but just looking at it, watching it 
just trail off every time. And I love flying. I would get on a plane. I wouldn't have any issues whatsoever. I wouldn't look to my left, wouldn't look to my right or anything like that. I'm not looking to see if there's any, you know, some ethnic person, you know, any Arabs on the plane thinking that, you know, they're going to you know crash the plane. None of that. I, you know, I was fine. It was just when I see a plane, I'd always like just stop and I'd be frozen in time. Um, I, three months after 9-11, I ended up separating from my, my wife. Uh, I think, you know, uh, on a couple different levels, I think it wasn't so much that we were meant to be. Um, it wasn't like, you know, it was, uh, it was amicable when it came down to it. Um, however, I remember after coming back from ground zero and remember being in a, in a, one of the DMAT tents and there's like bagfuls of letters and posters from kids from all over this world. And I'm sitting there reading these posters and, and pictures and stuff. And they're so brutally honest. You know, these kids are like you know, four or five, six years old. You know, dear Mr. Policeman, I hope you didn't get killed. Dear Mr. Fireman, I hope you didn't lose any legs or you know, so forth. But the pictures of them drawing and you know, it was just like, you know, amazing. And yet obviously you know, it was emotional. And I got home and I told my wife and she's like, I don't understand why you go down there. And she's like, I feel, you know, like, why do you kill yourself to go down there? And it was at that point where I said, I actually feel more at home down there than I do in my own house. I think that was like the straw that broke the camel's back. So uh, we ended up separating and you know, divorced, you know, like six months later. Um, and then I really started looking into what do I want to do for, for the rest of my career? You know, my parents were snowbirds down in, uh, in Florida. So I had come down here. I looked into it. Um, I had initially done it, but my wife at the time didn't want to go down there. Um, I had applied to the fire Academy. Uh, it was a two year process or a two year waiting list. Um, unbeknownst to me, I had got accepted, but because I had moved, I never got the notification. So when I started calling and finding out things and getting further information, um, they said, yeah, you can come down anytime and start the next class. I was like, okay. So I had to you know, obviously make some you know decisions and so forth. And this is 2004. Um, and during that time, one of my buddies that I worked with, um, he was a, a medic uh, while I was like a volunteer EMT. He's you know real real cool guy, um, you know Tom Fantry, and he was a former uh, Army 82nd Airborne. Uh, he was like into triathlons, funny guy, like really comical. He had this, you know, obviously it's kind of hard to see, but he had this, this look on his face, like almost like his eyes would raise as wide as possible and pucker up his lips, like, you know, in, a, in a, an amazement or bewilderment type thing when he would make a joke or something. It was just, you, you had to see it. Um, he came down with, uh, he developed a brain tumor, um, you know, cancerous brain tumor and it was removed and he went to remission doing great. Uh, he was, you know, paramedic with me in Jersey, but he also became a uh, police officer in Mount Vernon, uh, married 
and had two uh, has two boys, uh, Thomas Jr. and uh, Nicholas. And boys were around nine months, ten months, um, and his tumor came back, and it started to uh, to mets, uh, metastasize throughout his uh, his spinal cord. Um, and I think it was like the, the latter, I know it was in the winter. I, I can't remember if it was like December or January. I'd go out to the hospital to see him. And he was, you know, coherent and stuff, a little, you know, slow to respond. But I mean, communication wise, um, maybe like two weeks later, I came back to see him. He couldn't speak, couldn't say anything, look at you. Um, his wife was like, you know, she's like, can you please try to get him? To, to eat something or to, you know, like Italian ice, just to get something in them. And so, like, you know, like I'm sitting there trying to get him, and he, he wouldn't open up his mouth. So I'm like, you know, what the fuck do I do? Like, I'm sitting there going, come on, Tom. I go, let's do the airplane. You know, I did this with my kids at work. You know, maybe it'll work with Tom. I'm like, come on, Tom. Here comes the airplane. <laughs> open up your fucking mouth and let the airplane in. And, and he opened up his mouth, you know, like I put it, I said, good boy, good, you know. And he's like looking at me with that look on his face, you know, with his eyes open, his lips puckered like the, you know, like you motherfucker look. And I knew he was in there. You know, I, I, knew, I knew Tom was in there. And, uh, you know, he passed away two weeks later. And it's just like, fuck, like, why the fuck is this happening? Like, and again, I'm like going from, you know, incident to incident to incident. I think I'm doing the right thing. I think, you know, I've gone through EAP after 9-11. I, you, know, I, you know, I have a new outlook or I thought I had a new outlook on my, you know, behavior. And, and it was, I thought things were okay. And um, God, that, that not having faith and really losing my faith in in everything um you know like my psychiatrist says it's almost like um uh, like uh survivor's guilt he goes you know i understand the 9-11 he goes but like you almost wish it was you rather than them like your life isn't as meaningful as theirs and it's true. It was like, you know, like I wasn't married, you know, or I was divorced or I didn't have any children when the, the incident happened with the gentleman in, in, in uh, Starbucks. I didn't have any, you know, it was my niece, you know, in reference to the little girl. Like, like why them and not me? Like their life seemed to have more impact or their life seemed to be more important than mine. And I didn't realize that I'm just like my self-esteem, my faith, all this stuff is like happening without my control, you know, or, but then again, I didn't think I had an issue. Um, my mom ended up passing away. Uh, oh, I guess I went a little too, too far in advance. So after Tom had passed away that summer, I ended up going to Florida to the fire academy. I was able to still maintain my employment in the city. I was going back and forth from Florida to New York. Um, I worked on the weekends. Um, I went to the academy Monday through Friday. 
uh, down in Florida. And I was living at my parents' place. They were, like I said, they were snowbirds. So like over the summer, they they weren't there. So I lived in the, in the retirement community of uh, in Delray Beach, you know, full of, you know, my fellow Jews from New York who were just constantly trying to fix me up with their, you know, their granddaughters or daughters or divorced daughters and stuff. And uh, it was it was like a nightmare. Um, but I made it through the academy. Um, during the time, my mom had been suffering for the past uh, eight years of a neurological disorder uh, called cortical basal ganglionic degeneration, which basically it's like a in the Parkinsonian family, and it's basically a degenerative process um, similar to Lou Gehrig's disease, uh, but without pain. Uh, she slowly lost the ability to speak, um, you know, her speech slurred and lost her ability to speak, became neurological deficit on her left side. Um, and she basically was overcoming her. And, um, that summer she made the decision, uh, on her 50th anniversary that when it got to the point that she could no longer communicate with her hands that she wanted to stop uh, her feedings. She was getting fed through a, a, you know, a feeding tube. Um, and it's funny uh, or ironic that when this took place, it was my parents' anniversary was June 27th. And um, I we were all in town in, in Albany for the anniversary. And... Uh, that week, my father called me and said to me, he goes, hey, did you ever see this movie, Field of Dreams? And I'm like, yeah, I did. And he's like, that's, a, that's an awesome. He goes, oh, that's an awesome movie. He goes, I just saw it for the first time. He never knew that that movie always reminded me of my father. Um, because of, like I said, when I played baseball, I never played catch with my dad. So at the end of the movie, when he said, you know, hey, dad, you know, how about a catch? You know, it just always tore me up, um, which, you know, again, I was, you know, there, there's that hypersensitivity that was popping through throughout that time. Um, you know, the, 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 uh, the hypervigilance, the hypersensitivity, the anxieties and all this other stuff was really heightened. Um, I couldn't watch a fucking TV commercial on ASPCA without bawling my eyes out. St. Jude commercial comes on, I'm fucking crying. My wife thinks, you know, my current, you know, my wife now thinks like, you know, for a long time, she's like, holy shit, you cry everything. I'm like, yeah, I guess I'm just emotional. <laughs> I'm in tune to, to my senses. Um, but I, at least now I know why. Um, but back then, you know, the, the field of dreams, I never realized it. And when I came home for the anniversary, I went to the garage. I found two baseball gloves and a baseball. I went out to the backyard with my dad. And I said, hey, dad, how about a catch? And he started bawling. And obviously, I did too. But for the first time in my life, I had a catch with my dad. and. I didn't realize, you know, obviously at that point that it was only going to be a little over a year later that he would pass away. Um, my mom ended up passing away the night that I was supposed to graduate from the fire academy. 
Um, she finally succumbed to the neurological process. Um, and I was there uh, when she passed. And I, I, it, it was okay. It was, uh, she made a decision. She lived her life to, you know, she controlled her life to the very end. And she had her say. And, you know, it was peaceful. Um, I wasn't emotional initially when it happened um, because it was like quality versus quantity of life. Like, I would never want my mom to suffer. Like, you know, I would never wish that, that she would die. I just, you know, want her to be at peace. And then when she passed, it was like, it was, it was okay. And I don't know if it was because I was becoming so numb to death and I still was questioning everything and not having that faith. But I think like at that time, the only faith I had was that my mother was in, was in heaven and she was at peace. That's the only faith that I really had at that time. Everything else was, it, it just wasn't there. Um, you know, finally, you know, I graduated from the academy. Um, I got a job right off the bat, like three months after the academy, with a uh, you know small department, Hallandale Beach, um, and I was only there for four months until Fort Lauderdale gave me the call, and uh, I jumped on it, um, and I've been there ever since. Uh, it's been I just celebrated my eighteen years. Um, unfortunately. Right after, I think it was, I got on, on shift, my, like July of 2005. Uh, in October, I think it was Hurricane Wilma that was coming our way. And I went into work for overtime prior to my shift. Not there half hour, and my brother calls me and tells me that my, my father just passed. And evidently, he was having, I know he was having some discomfort earlier that week, went to the hospital. He said that he had like some sort of muscle strain. Ended up going back a second time. Um, they didn't find out anything. All of his levels were normal and so forth. And we just think that he was, you know, evolving over those days. And then, you know, finally, you know, that, that Sunday night, he just dropped that. Um, Unfortunately, he did this in front of his new girlfriend that he just moved in with. And while this happened, she ends up having a heart attack watching and having to be have a stent put in a couple of days later while we're preparing for his funeral. Um, and my brothers and I are joking around about it because it's like, yeah, my mother probably saw what was going on, didn't like it. And <laughs> said, you know what? You know, en enough. You're, you're coming. You're coming up here. Uh, and that was. You know, again, it was a sudden thing. You know, I had <laughs> both uh, experiences. I had the, the, the drawn-out experience with my mom, and I had the sudden death with my dad. Um, they both suck. Um, but no regrets, you know? Like, like I had those moments with, my, with my, both my mom and my dad, you know, before they passed. Um, you know, that catch, you know, that didn't know that that was going to be one of the last things I played golf with my dad, you know, prior he met my wife and, and her two children right when we got engaged, which was a month before he passed. 
so you know th there were some things that you know that I was happy that 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 I had that opportunity um and, and I think that was like the the end of my traumatic incidents uh, so from like 97 to 2005 all these things were taking place meanwhile you know I, I meet my wife in 2000 uh really 2004 2005 uh the beginning of 2005 we started dating uh right when i got hired with fort lauderdale and it moved pretty fast and she had two children she's just coming off of divorce um and you know she had her history uh from abusive marriage you know, she was absolutely beautiful, or she is absolutely beautiful, um, to the point where it's like, you know, oh, my friends are like, you're totally kicking outside your area of coverage. Like, what is she seeing? Yeah. And uh, for a long time, I was like, I, I have no clue. Um, but we started having some issues. We started having some, you know, little fights here and there. But I was starting to have more aggression. I was starting to have more outbursts um, to the point where I was having like these sea red moments. Um, you know, like she would say something to me and I'd just fly off the fucking handle. You know, and I'd do stupid shit. You know, like I'd grab a knife and I'd slam it down on the table. You know, I would just, I can't even explain to you the things that, I, that I've done. Um, not because I'm embarrassed about it. I mean, I could tell you I've called her every name in the book. I've degraded her. I've said some shit to her that I, who's going to be the end of being the mother of my children. Um, and she's still standing there. She's still there, even to this day. And, we split up for a while, um, you know, right after my dad had passed away, she became pregnant, um, with her daughter, her 16 year old. And, um, after my daughter was born in 2006, uh, maybe like a year later, we ended up splitting up for you know, six months to a year because of my, you know, erratic behavior and aggression and explosive behavior. And I had seen a, a psychiatrist. I started going through therapy. And my psychiatrist said that I had what's called intermittent explosive disorder, or IED, which he said he wasn't you know, really quite sure because a lot of the cases um, have had uh, previous traumatic incidents, you know, uh, structural uh, trauma. So he says, you know, but the thing is, is that, you know, it's inter you know, intermittent. So it only happens here and there. So I can control it. it. Never happened at work. I never had any kind of outburst. Never had any incidents at work. It's always been at home. So I didn't really start believing so much that it was, you know, that this intermittent explosive disorder. We we're still having, you know, we, we got back together. Things were good. It's like kind of like, you know, you manage it for a while. You know, things are good. You think things are in the past. And they're not. They're just on the back burner. They really haven't gotten resolved. We've never gone to marriage counseling. We just think things are going to get better in time. And, you know, it's just a phase. And then it's, you know, shit started, you know, rearing up again. Um, 
you know, the anger, the, the punching the walls, throwing things, breaking things, you know, hitting, hitting myself, like, like seriously smacking my head, like hitting my head, punching my head, like to the point where like, I'm like praying that like, God, let me just have some sort of a fucking tumor. Let me have a brain tumor that's making me behave this way. Or maybe if I can hit my head so hard that I'll get my, you know, have, make myself have a brain bleed. Maybe, you know, like just, I just want to die. I don't want to be here anymore. I just, I can't do this anymore. Um, you know, but, uh, I'm, I'm the, the, the father of three children, you know, her two children, they're my children. The, their father's not in, in the picture. They're my, my children. And, uh, I'm like a father to them or I am their father. And I'm this supposed to be this strong husband, this fireman, this paramedic, this person who, who, who's devoted his life to serving others and truly gets a ton of gratitude for being there for, in, in, in someone else's time of need. Um, and I thought I would immerse myself in doing that. If I can make other people happy, if I can make other people feel like they've been taken care of, that's going to make me feel good. That's going to make all this shit go away. And it doesn't. You know, it's kind of like, you know, the proverbial flight attendant that says, you know, before you put the oxygen mask on others, put it on yourself first. You got to take care of yourself before you take care of others. I, I totally wasn't doing that. I was doing it for everybody else because I thought that was what I was supposed to do. That's, that's what I convinced myself. Um, finally, like 2011, it was January, it was Martin Luther King Day of all days. Kids were off from school, but they were at their grandparents. Elizabeth was uh, was pregnant with our youngest, um, like four months pregnant. And we got into some sort of a stupid argument. And I had a drum stand because I was learning how to play the snare drum for the, the pipes and drum band. And I like grabbed the drum stand and I was like, God, I just want to bash your fucking head in. And she got scared and she started to leave. And our bedroom was on the second floor. And I didn't want her to leave. Like I'm, I'm grabbing her arm because I just, I just didn't want her to leave me. And she slips and she falls down the stairs. And I'm just like, like, please don't leave me. Just please don't leave me. And she ends up leaving. She returns with two police officers. And uh, they just tell me that they just, you know, have some self-preservation, just, you know, let her get some clothes and you guys can resolve this tomorrow and so forth and, and don't do a goddamn thing about it. In which at that point they should have arrested me. Uh, so the next day she comes home with the kids and, you know, everything's okay. But unbeknownst to me, she had filed for a restraining order. Well, because of that, the sergeant had required the uh, police officers that did the first um, clothing withdrawal or removal to write up their report got sent up to the state attorney's office because she's pregnant. It automatically becomes a, a felony uh, or an aggravated battery. 
so she wants me to, you know, so there, you know, I talked to the police and so forth and, you know, I told I turned myself in. So I ended up turning myself in, uh, you know, I, I bailed myself out like the next day after the, the court uh, appearance, the judge was kind of lackadaisy, but he's like, I don't even know why you're arrested. He goes, there's so many holes in the story and so forth. And, and I don't know what's going, you know, to me, this is my first time I ever got arrested, you know, uh, only time I got arrested. Um, but I'm still, it's still not clicking as far as what's going on. Um, my wife is there in court, uh, making sure that like, well, she wanted for me to get help. She just wanted me to, me to be accountable for my my actions and wanting me to get help. And I'm thinking all along that she's out for for blood. Um, there's no contact. I can't can't talk to her. Can't text her. Nothing. Um, I think she's come. You know. You know. I, I moved in with some friends from work, and there's no contact. I haven't seen my my daughter um, or any of the kids for months. I had to go through family court to get uh, supervised visitation. Finally, just with my daughter, they wouldn't let me to see the other two. Um, and then thereafter, finally, after going through like a uh, anger management uh, therapy and all this stuff, um, did they allow me to, uh, to have visitation with my daughter? But unfortunately, the day that that had taken place was on June 27th. Um, and again, it was my parents' anniversary, and I'm in court, and my attorney is literally ripping my wife a new asshole by asking her all these stupid questions in regards to whether I'm not the, the, the father of my daughter or the father of, of the unborn child and stuff. And you know, in, in Florida, the only way of knowing uh, definitively is by a blood test. So when he asks, am I the father? She says, yes, I assume so. And he starts like ripping into her because she doesn't want to perjure herself by saying something that he, she can come, he can come back and say, oh, you're lying because you get a blood test. So she's emotional. She's full-term pregnant. I'm sitting there watching her just get berated by my attorney. So finally I'm like mouthing to her relax. And I turned my attorney. I said, that's it. I'm done. I said, I plead guilty because this isn't the criminal case. I said, I don't give a shit. I said, enough of this badgering. I said, I don't want, you, you can't do this to her. This isn't what I want. I said, I did this. I, I battered her because you didn't, you didn't beat her up. I said, no, I put my hand on her. I grabbed her arm. I don't care what, how it is. I said, but that's what I did. Well, because the justice system is perfect, um, unbeknownst to me, uh, four months earlier, the state attorney's office had asked my attorney if I would consider pleading no contest, entering an agreement to uh, go into a batter's intervention program for six months and have the charges dropped. And my attorney never told me. Um, two weeks after June 27th, my son was born. I wasn't there for her. My son, more so, I wasn't there for Elizabeth. And my attorney knew and never told me. Even two weeks after he was born, that's when I found out that I had a son. When I finally had 
my daughter for visitation. She was on the phone with my wife, and she's reading her. She wanted a, a good night story, her bedtime story. And my wife's like, I could hear her say, "Just go spend time with daddy." She's like, "It's your time with daddy. Go, you know, go have fun." And she's like, no, mommy, I want you to, to tell me a, a bedtime story. She goes, no, because she's afraid that I'm going to sit there and say, oh, she talks to my daughter all the time. So finally, you know, <laughs> I break the, the the no contact by taking the phone. And I said to Elizabeth, I go, hey, it's okay. Just talk to her and let and tell her a story. She's like, okay. She's like, how are you? I said, I'm okay. I said, I'm so sorry for all this. I said, you know. I have a six-page letter that I wrote you. Would it be okay if I gave it to Helena? She's like, call me later. So I ended up calling her, and we were on the phone for a couple hours, and I read her the, the letter. How, and I took accountability for, for my actions and, and what had taken place. It was at that, at that time, my psychiatrist that I was seeing started to talk to me more about PTSD and started to think that I had more of like a, a chemical imbalance because of all the previous trauma that I uh, endured. Uh, so they put me on some antidepressants um, and it changed over time. And it seemed to manage for the most part, the, like the anger, the mood stabilizer helped. Uh, the depression part did. And I just started, you know, I was still having these anger moments and depressive moments. And it was like a roller coaster ride. It was the hypervigilance being at work, coming home, zoning out, watching TV, not, you know, distancing myself from everybody in the house, you know, being an asshole just because there's, there's dishes in the sink and nobody's taking the time to clean them or bitching at the kids. Kids don't want anything to do with me. The kids think that this is their fault because, like, why is dad mad at us? What did we do? And I'm just this miserable fuck. And every time I would get upset or I get mad, I get, you know, it would be a cycle. It would be like I'd yell, I, you know, I, you know, I'd calm down, I'm happy. And then inside, I'm internalizing this and I'm depressed. I'm ashamed of my actions and I, and I get even more depressed. And then you repeat, do it again, and it gets worse. I'm ashamed of myself. I'm isolating myself. I'm more depressed. Repeat. And it just keeps going. Until finally last year, I just, I had enough. I got into it with my wife over something stupid. I mean, most of this shit is stupid. But like I threw out a cup of hers by accident. Didn't even realize it. I didn't think I did it, but then I, I was like, I went in the garbage, I found it. And they were making fun of it. It wasn't, but I was taking it like personally. And and I was like, and I like walked upstairs and I'm like, I was checked out. And I was like, God, I'm just, I'm going to go blow my fucking brains apart. And I went upstairs in my room, I grabbed my gun case. And I said, just do it. Just do it. It'll only be for a second. And I grab my gun case. I open up my gun, and I uh, and I put the clip in, and I rack it like three times. You know, and as I rack it, you know, obviously after the you know after the first time the bullet is coming out of the chamber, 
I did it just because I wanted her to hear it. I wanted her to hear what was coming. And uh, I put it in my mouth. And she, like, just as I put it in my mouth, she, like, walks in the room. And I, like, quickly took it. And she's like, what, are you going to shoot me? And I was like, no, it's just, I'm just, like, cleaning my gun. You know, I don't know what the fuck I said. I'm saying something stupid. So she takes the kids and she leaves. And then my, you know, half hour later, my brothers both call me. They're like, what the fuck are you doing? And I was like, I, you know, I kind of made light of it. I'm like, dude, I said, dude, when I get upset, I just do busy work. I so, so I went upstairs and I was just fucking, you know, cleaning my gun. You know, I just, they obviously didn't buy it. And uh, my oldest brother said to me, and, and this is, this is what had, at, you know, it was that exact moment that I realized I, I, I'm going to kill myself. Eventually, I'm going to kill myself if I don't do something. Um, and he said to me, because I don't know what you're trying to prove or who you're trying to prove it to. He goes, but you need to get fucking help. He goes, you need intensive. He goes, I'm not talking about go talk to somebody once a week. He goes, I'm talking about go away and fucking get help. He said, because you're going to kill yourself. He goes, are you going to do something? He goes, that I don't even want to say. And and he was right. And then, like, I just sat there and I was like, I'm like, what the fuck am I, what am I doing? I am, like, destroying my marriage. I'm destroying my kids. My kids hate me. I see the personality different, you know, the changes in them. My relationship with my son, my oldest son, sucks. My middle daughter, you know, my youngest daughter thinks, I don't even know. She's scared of me. My oldest daughter thinks I don't even care for her as a daughter. And my little one, who I try not to fuck up, you know, I'm, I'm doing just that. Like, I'm thinking, like, they'd be better off without me. But then, you know, you say to yourself, you don't want to fuck your kids up anymore. And you're going to if you do. And it was like, it was like a hard choice. It was like, you know, I used to tell, you know, I've gone through enough funerals, you know, suicides where I'd say that they're cowards. And, uh, you know, and, I, and I've regretted saying those words. I've regretted saying that because until you're there, until you, you know what it feels like to just, you just want it to stop. You know, you, you don't, don't want to die you just want all the shit that comes along with it that you've gone through you just want to stop you just want those those things that are going on in your head those thoughts those you know the, the way you feel you just want it to stop and uh you know i, I didn't know what to do so I, you know, I, at work i one of my my boss my battalion chief friends with he's part of the peer support um he had you know, obviously a connection for uh, Florida House um, or FAT Health in Deerfield Beach, which has a program called Shatterproof. And it's for um, first responders, military, uh, which they're all housed together. And they're like kind of a little bit on like the cutting edge of, uh, of psychiatry and dealing with uh, PTSD, depression, addiction, and so forth. 
So he said, you know, I'll make a call. And he did. And they were willing to come get me, you know, right then and there. Um, but I had, I needed a couple days because obviously I had to get, I was getting an apartment um, just so I could separate myself from the kids and Elizabeth while I go through all this. So I ended up getting checked into uh, to Shatterproof. You have to spend a couple days in, you know, what I refer to as Gen Pop, uh, which Elizabeth didn't like when I when I called it that. Uh, where you're you're amongst you know both the first responders as well as the you know anybody else, which was uh, it was kind of like going to jail a little bit, you know, the, the routine and so forth. But fortunately. I got roomed with a guy who just come in that day uh, from Indiana. He was a police officer. Um, my age ended up having like literally almost like the same mental health issues. Um, we both didn't have any addictions, which is, you know, actually surprising, uh, you know, in, in the mental health world uh, dealing with PTSD that a lot of times, you know, it comes along with other types of, uh, issues. Um, you know, I'm not a big drinker or anything of that sort no drugs. Um, and we hit it off. Like we, we ended up becoming like Rooney's, you know, when we got moved over to, uh, to the shatterproof housing, we both, uh, lucked out and we got like a, most people had four people total in the apartment. We only had one bedroom, so it was just the two of us. And we just hit it off. It was it was incredible. Um, but that program saved my life. It uh, it opened up my mind in ways that I couldn't imagine. You know, for the longest time, for those twenty two years that I've been dealing with this shit. You know, the biggest question that you ask is why? And I learned right off the bat, why is a deadly question? Because why, you don't get an answer. You don't get an answer. You, you're, you're, there isn't an answer you're going you're gonna to hear because that why only comes from one place, and that's that higher being. You know, whatever your faith is or your religious beliefs, you know, God, Buddha, whoever. You're the only ones that have the answer for you. And until you, you, you get there, you're not going to know why. Plus, you're not going to like the answer. And it really doesn't do you any good to know the answer. It doesn't change anything. What changes is you in order to overcome all the stuff that you've gone through. Well, Shatterproof offered me, you know, all these types of therapies, um, the first thing they did was they did a, a neuromapping or brain mapping, which shows like the frequencies in your brain waves. Um, and it, it shows you where trauma occurs in your brain, where the hypervigilance, anxiety, depression, all the stuff. And it's all based on like colors, which are interpreted as, you know, with your brain waves. And for the first time I could actually see from a medical standpoint where my brain was affected. I can actually visually see that this is where my hypervigilance comes from. This is where the trauma is and how heightened it is. So it, it doesn't excuse the behavior. It just helps me to understand that I'm just not making this shit up and I'm not going crazy. I have some sort of validation 
and again, it, 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 I don't use it to go to my wife and say, here, look at this. This is why I'm like this. No, but it's to say all the shit that I went through or I've gone through, just like she's gone through. She's got her own traumas. The kids have their own traumas. They haven't gone through the therapy that I'm, I've gone through. They're getting there. But because of my traumas and my actions have caused trauma to them. But I, at least I could say for me, okay, I have a better understanding of where it came from and what it did to me. Now let's get on the path to fix it or to, to help and, and get me on a path to, to normality. Um, I went through one-on-one -on -one therapy, did group therapy. I did art therapy. I did yoga, um, neurofeedback, which is like kind of like on a very small scale of like, you know, shock treatment, um, just like little impulses to kind of rearrange those, uh, those brain waves and to get that hypervigilance and that depression, isolation, all those stuff in a neuro, in a, in a very normal pathway. It's that plasticity that, that, that's amazing about our brain, that our brain can be conditioned and can be reconditioned to being in a normal, you know, a, a normal uh, range um, and, and stay there and to continue with, you know, things that are going to help keep you healthy and to maintain that healthy lifestyle and that healthy, you know, brain lifestyle as well. Um, I, I ended up doing, you know, like I said, yoga, breath work, um, breathing techniques. Uh, and then I finally found the game changer, and that was IV ketamine. And, uh, <laughs> and I see that, you know, like I, I laugh about it. It's like, oh, I can get high and it's going to help. Um, no, it has nothing to do about the, the getting high part. Um, it's just that I realized in talking to people that had gone through the program, they said, you need to submit yourself and be submissive to anything and everything they throw at you. Because until you find that one thing, you might overlook it, and that might be the one that does it for you. Um, because it is a trial and error, trying to figure out what works for you. And I had six sessions uh, while I was there, and the uh, they were going good until like the fourth session. The fourth session, I had this uh, horrible session. Now I know ketamine. You know the whole idea behind the ketamine is that the the, the normal antidepressants, uh, the the serotonin reuptake, uh, usually work on your neurotransmitters like the, the dopamine, nor, uh, norepinephrine and the serotonin. Um, whereas the ketamine usually works on other types of neurotransmitters and it, it helps to kind of increase the synapses or the connectivity. Um, in my antidepressants were the mood stabilizer was, was doing what it should be, but it was the antidepressant that wasn't working. So I think it was becoming resistant to it. So the ketamine was an option to see if, you know, could kind of pick up on the other neurotransmitters. Just quickly, was and it, were they doing the counseling with the ketamine or was it just the infusion on its own? 
So what they did was they did a, uh, a neuro uh, stimulation uh, treatment prior to that was to stimulate your vagus nerve to kind of help you relax. And then during the actual session, um, they just put you through the set. They didn't you know, do any kind of uh, counseling with you while you were there. You know, I listened to some like music or whatever that they, they put. Um, but at the one, my last session, I did have somebody that was there that was talking to me. And, and I think they did it because after my fourth session, I really had a bad experience. Um, ketamine is not good for, or they think that it's not good for those that have anxiety, that it can actually exacerbate that, that ang uh, anxiety and anxiousness, um, in which it does, but I can manage it. Like I, I, I I always say that there's three people there. There's me going through it. There's me, you know, seeing myself go through it. And then there's me who's talking myself off the ledge. Like I can actually sit there and when I know that I'm getting anxious, I can say, oh, you know, okay, Jason, just relax. Take a deep breath. You got this. You're in control. And I can control myself and I'm, I'm good with it. But what it does, it, it really just like, it just opens your mind up. And whatever thought I want to think of, I can go there immediately and not have a real emotional response in, in a negative way. Like if I want to think about like my, my parents or even there are times where I've thought about the traumas that I've seen, it never really stimulated any kind of emotional response. It never got like upset. Like I just, I felt like at peace with it. Um, but that fourth session, it's like I felt like I opened up Pandora's box and just all that shit came rushing out. And I felt like, you know, I felt nauseous. I felt like I was losing control. I felt like I was going into this black hole of the end. <laughs> like I was going to go into this hole and I was never coming out. It just, it was that scary. And I was like frightened to go back for my fifth, but I'm like, okay, maybe this is what how the process is. And I talked to my therapist, and, you know, he explained this. Sometimes it does happen. He goes, sometimes it taps into something that, you know, for, for reasons unknown, maybe it is. You go, see how the fifth, you know, in the fifth, I came out and I was, I was on cloud nine. Like, you know, I just, I felt good. Like, <laughs> like in 20 years of like going in front of the mirror, and whether saying to myself, you know, God, you're fat, you need to lose weight, or, you know, you're so fucked up. Like, I never, I, I used it as, like, negative motivation to lose weight and stuff. I never looked at myself and said, wow, hey, dude, where have you been? I haven't seen you in 22 years. Like, I felt really good. I was happy. And uh, and since then, you know, I, like, I, I've been going now, like, once, I was doing it once a month for a little while and then now I'm doing like once every two months and there are times where after like those two months you know I kind of feel a little bit not depressed I just I could feel a little in a rut and I go and I and I go through the, the session and it's like I'm just like re-energized you know just I feel very it sounds corny but I feel very vibrant you know it's just like nothing can can stop me you know i feel i feel good and i'm in a good place and along with it i just you know i, I stick to the routine of you know my therapy 
uh, you know, I read a lot, you know, as far as, you know, it's like, you know, psychological stuff, you know, like mindfulness, I'm very into meditation. I do like every night I go to bed, I meditate and I feel it's just like a great way to end the day. You know, some people feel it's, it's great. And the first thing in the morning to start your day for me, it just, I just lay in bed and I put on, uh, there's this guy, Jason Stevenson. He's like, uh, he's Australian, uh, and I, and I go through this, you know, sleep meditation with him or I just put on like brown noise, white noise, whatever. And it just, I chill. I do my own little breathing work and, and it, it helps. It just, it makes things better. Well, it's uh yeah. No, I was going to say, well, firstly, thank you because I think I've only asked about two questions. So the editing on this is going to be amazing. <laughs> and anyone that, that hates my voice, they're probably going to love this episode as well. <laughs> yeah, anyone anyone who knows me is going to sit there going, oh, he got him cornered. He, he just talked his way through. <laughs> no, but it was beautiful because you led us exactly. I was looking at my piece of paper and it's like we've gone all the way through the list of what I would have asked you anyway. But I do want to circle around a couple of parts. The aggression anger element is something that isn't really discussed that much we talk a lot about you know depression suicide you know those kind of things but i think a lot of ours manifests in anger and i um god who the hell was it um sure i remember oh dan de grice who's one of the absolute gurus in firefighter mental health we were comparing notes on our road rage and, you know, again, I have never physically manhandled someone in the car, but what goes through my head, and it's a lot better now, but certainly when I was on shift, you know, you've seen the horrible things that we've seen, and then you watch someone drive like an asshole, which kind of circles back to our, you know, opening conversation. I see that person sitting on the curb, sobbing in fucking self-pity after they've wiped out a minivan full of kids and, you know, parents, and it's too late then. You know what I mean? Right. So to me, I'm projecting a result of doom and gloom and I want to stop that from happening. So I want to grab that person through their fucking windshield and slam their face into the curb until they cease to be a danger to anyone. Is that actually a, a, a good social reaction to that? Absolutely not. We have people that we pay to wear uniforms that take care of those kind of people. But that anger is very much it, you know? So I think that's an important thing. And there's two types of people in the fire service. The people that should never have been hired in the first place, who are pieces of shit and happen to get through. I'm not talking about them. But the people that we have, that we work alongside, that became alcoholics, that became abusive, that turned into dicks. You ask, okay, what were they like on the draw ground during probation, those first couple of years? Were they assholes? If the answer is no, a lot of these things that we're talking about today are a combination of all these things a lot of which are contributed to by the job so i had a, a lawyer lisa hule on a great conversation but she started defending first responders with some of these charges including you know domestic abuse and things like that there is a hundred percent as you put your hand on your heart about your own situation a victim in these cases but the mental health element is a valid part of the defense of the responder Will it save that person's marriage? Maybe, maybe not, you know, but if we're not taken into the fact that, you know, same with our, our men and women in the military, that our service has a cost and some of us are extremely fortunate to navigate our career and never have any issues, but some of us aren't. And that person who was a rock star when you were in probie school, probie school 
is now drinking himself into oblivion and and belligerent and and aggressive that he he didn't used to be like that and this is what we've got to have this conversation as well so firstly I want to thank you for for that insight because I think it's very important. You know, we had this thing about oh, the unions always protect the assholes. Sometimes yes, but sometimes those people are worth fighting for. I agree a hundred percent. The other thing that was extremely important is you talked about the feeling of being a burden to your family, and this is something that again I didn't have this epiphany eight years ago. I've learned this through all my amazing guests, but you have led us through childhood trauma, you know, sexual abuse and, you know, and some other areas, then, you know, the things that you actually saw, that feeling, you know, the inability to save. Now as you're progressing through in the first responder professions, you're adding sleep deprivation, you know, and now you've, you've got all these compounding elements that are contributing to the miswiring of the brain. And obviously the, the feeling of being a burden and the aggression are totally interrelated with this whole perfect storm of negative uh, contributing factors. But I wish that more people understood that because as you touched on, and I've talked about this, and I think you and I have chatted about this, that suicide is is selfish, is cowardly conversation, is so ignorant. Now I know that, you know, I was thinking the same thing 10 years ago myself. But when you understand that through this perfect storm of all these negative things, unaddressed childhood trauma, you know, organizational stress, alcohol to decompress, which actually fucks up your sleep, sleep deprivation at work, forced mandatories, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The brain becomes so miswired that you've got a first responder who has signed on a piece of paper that they will die for a complete stranger, that now their brain is lying to them and they have them thinking that they are a burden to their family. That, that that human being truly believes that their newborn child and the woman that they fell madly in love with will actually be better off if they're dead, that needs to be on our posters. Not, not, a, yeah, not a phone number, you know? I mean, you can have that as a resource, but that needs to be. If you believe that you are a burden to your family, that is one of the biggest red flags that should be front and center in the, in the first responder suicide conversation. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it's funny because I, I don't know if it's just because as I get older and I start seeing things a little bit clearer, or maybe, you know, maybe I'm maturing finally. Um, I realize that, listen, 30%, you know, the, the statistic of, you know, 30% of uh, people and, you know, first responders are going to have mental health issues. Um, we, we know that there's more deaths by suicide than there are from line of duty deaths. And that's just the ones that are reported. Um, it's not going to happen to everybody. I think that there is a lot of variables that play a role into this. I think a lot of it is, or some of it has to do with background. Um, maybe I had, you know, I was susceptible to PTSD. Um, maybe somebody who went through the exact same experience that I have maybe had a different background might not be you might not have developed it or might have we don't know specifically what it is and i I really don't care because that's the why and like i said to you before the the why doesn't matter it's like you know yeah you look at my background and you say that this is you know okay i could see some of the red flags and maybe this is where we can kind of pinpoint it but it doesn't matter it's because of recognizing and coming to the understanding of okay you've accepted it and you 
realize that you have a problem. That's the hardest part is taking action, taking responsibility, you know, in saying I have a problem and wanting help. And that's, to me, that's the hardest part, you know, and I said, you know, I've said to people, there was even one officer development class that we were running and somebody that I work with had said something like, well, do you feel as if that, you know, they just keep, you know, you know, throwing down or, or throwing, um, pushing our face, all this mental health, you know, awareness, it's like shoving it down our throats. You know, do you feel, you know, like there's so much, like every time you, you look around, somebody's talking about mental health and so forth. And I'm like, you know, I can understand where there's been a lot of uh, information and there's been a, a, maybe a push in mental health. I said, but you have to say to yourself, why is that? I said, because there's people that are killing themselves. There's fellow brothers and sisters that, that are out there killing themselves. And, and I know what it feels like to want to be that person who kills himself. I said, because I was there. I said, I might not have pulled the trigger. I said, but something stopped me. I said, and I think it, it wasn't my wife opening up the door. I think it was at that point that I actually had some sort of a, a I know better that this is not what I want. Whether it's, it's I'm scared to die or what, something stopped me from doing it. And I remember having a dream last year after I got out of Shatterproof that I had a fight with my dad, like a physical fight, confrontation. And I remember pulling a gun and I was going to shoot him. And instead, I twisted the gun around and it, and it clicked. Like, it, like I actually pulled the trigger and there was nothing in the chamber. There was the the gun wasn't even loaded, but I woke up like a like in a cold you know sweat, and I'm sitting there breathing heavy, and I like literally was scared shitless. Like this was like a, like a, the worst dream, but it was at that moment I realized that you know what like I woke up like I'm happy, it's okay, I'm still you know I'm alive because had that been reality back when I put my gun in my mouth. And I actually pulled that trigger. That's it. Lights out for me. And now I've left the burden on my family. Supposedly, you know, the family that I love. You know, I, I've caused this. Um, it, it's there's no simple answer. There, there's you know, I, the biggest thing for me is that my wife is a saint. Um, and now that I have my faith in God, I've always said this to her that you know she'll say what has god done to me to to put me through all this or you know um he's tested her you know she's got she my wife has leukemia um and she's managing it quite well um she's gone through a lot in her life and i owe my life to her I owe my life to my children and I don't know which direction it's going to be. Um, but I only have time and that time is going to be spent trying to clean up my mess and to get them in the right direction so that they can overcome the challenges that I gave them or that I 
you know, put on them. Uh, she's still here with me. It's been 18 years. And I really can't say that if it was any other woman that she would still be here. He probably would have said, sayonara, adios, motherfucker, you're on your own. But, and again, I'm not going to say, I don't know why, I don't know what she sees, but you know what? She obviously sees something, and I'm not going to question that, because th that's something precious that I can only, uh, that I, that I, you know, just to, I don't even know what I'm saying sometimes. I just, I can't. There'll never be enough that I can do for her to make up for what I've done. But for as long as I'm here and for as long as I have, I'm going to ensure that I do what I can for her because that's how much she means to me. And my children are the same. And it's it's nothing, I don't care what happens to me anymore. It's all about them. And some people will, will argue and say, well, you need to care about yourself. Oh, I care about myself. I love myself. I love who I am. I love God. I'm happy. I'm in a good place. But I want to spend the rest of my life making sure that other people get right and to make sure that my family stays right. And that's my mission. Beautiful. Well, I mean, I think that's a very healing part. I mean, a lot of people that I've had on here that have gone through the crucible that you have, one of the healing things for them is actually doing things for others. So, you know, a perfect analogy, when I started this podcast, transitioned out my last um, fire department, out the, the fire service, wearing a uniform to help the fire service through this medium, um, my wife supported me. And that was terrifying financially and benefits wise and all that because it was a complete leap of faith which uh as as we speak you know some of the the sponsorship has kind of dwindled off and we got a dry patch and then you know there's some more on the horizon that i'm going to step in but it's it's a very insecure way of living your life but now my wife's in med school halfway through an optometry program and i'm now able to support her so this is what a beautiful marriage is about just going around as well to the why the mental health conversation all the time i think there's a few things to throw at that firstly the way that it's been addressed it was a very new topic for us so sadly a lot of it has not been done very well through no fault of anyone's but it's death by powerpoint here's the stats on you know double the line of duty deaths and i would argue that these are all line of duty deaths by the way um you know we don't talk about addiction overdose death by alcoholism, all the things that you would, you know, probably multiply by 10, these numbers. But I think where we need to go is that post-traumatic growth conversation. And then that pulls in the naysayers because to achieve the highest level of performance in sports as a paramedic at three in the morning doing a right-hand search in a two-story, you know, family dwelling – we are shooting, we are aiming, we are hoping for that flow state. And you ask anyone in the sporting world to enter that flow state, you have to have a clear mind. So you have to have 10, you know, 10,000 reps. You have to have high level of stress. Well, we have both of those if you're a diligent firefighter, you know, certainly into your career. 
But if you've got that maelstrom in your mind, you're never actually going to have the ability to truly be, you know, a critical thinker in the paramedic side, um, you know, have your head on a swivel on a fire scene, et cetera, et cetera. But also that these traumas can be a strength if we have processed them, they become a superpower. And we're not having that conversation either. As you talked about, two identical responders having two different you know, responses to traumas. Well, your childhood is very different to my childhood, you know, and I've been so bloody fortunate that I had some traumatic things happen. I was in a house fire when I was four and a bunch of other things. But by sheer chance, I had equal and opposite some amazing healing things through my career. My family literally lived around the the dinner table, talked and joked and made fun of each other. I grew up around blood and guts because my dad was a uh, equine um, and small animal vet veterinarian so we were doing surgeries so the blood and guts were never a big thing so for each bad there was a good you know i just again i haven't done anything special i'm just lucky that that was the case and i've been in some low place but never quite as low as the weapon in the hand like a lot of people have but you have grown from that you know your wife has come through i'm sure your children you know have or are going to my son had some really fucking horrible things happen in middle school and he's you know grown from that it's amazing to watch so i think that's the takeaway is the service the giving back to the people that that held you up and being that shoulder now for other people being that arm that reaches down because you've been there but also from a performance standpoint understanding that if we normalize these mental health conversations because this isn't a mental health conversation uh podcast this is a human being podcast but lo and behold 80 percent of these conversations go into the mental health side because most people have shit that they've gone through this is what's you know the human experience so to kind of add on to what you said we if we have that post-traumatic growth conversation the same way as I did overcome a back injury, figure out what was wrong in my body, fix it and come back stronger. That is, I think, the next step that's really going to normalize it and take away some of the naysayers of uh, people that just either haven't come to terms with their own trauma or maybe were fortunate enough to have really never be in a dark place. Yes, absolutely. And I remember when my, uh, my therapist had talked to me about you know post-traumatic growth and he says, you know, it's... It's it, just a different way of thinking. It's it's realizing that, you know, what has happened to you has happened. And, you know, it's not, for me, it's never forgetting. Uh, I'm never, you know, like that, I forget how I would say it, but it's like my, you know, my brain can't seem to erase the stored memories of the images that my eyes, my eyes have seen. Um, it'll never go away. They'll always be there. It's just, they don't have an effect on my life negatively. It's, it's, there's a positive and I use it as a positive because to talk to other people that, you know, I understand a lot of people are uncomfortable in talking about this types of, you know, mental health issues or addictions and, and so forth. It's tough, but you know what? Sometimes you have to have these tough discussions, you know, especially as an officer, you know, there are times where I have to have just, you know, tough discussions. Um, but they're discussions that need to be had because a change is needed, whether it's because somebody's not doing something that they should be as far as like, you know, a standing operating procedure, rules and regs and so forth, or just from a personal standpoint, you, you have an obligation. If we really truly, you know, believe in the brotherhood 
or the sisterhood. Because I think for a long time that those words are just used and mostly at funerals. You know, we're, we're all part of the brotherhood and sisterhood at funerals. Hey, brother, you're, you know, love you, brother, and so forth. But really, that's that's a mindset, and and also it's, change that that attitude, that you know, change that culture too. Um, if you truly believe in that brotherhood, then you really owe it to yourself to make sure that you're in there, spreading the word, and truly make sure everybody's good, and that, that you're there to to help others, and and if need be, you need to know you have to help yourself too. That's the, you know, for me, that's the, the first priority. If I'm good, then, I, then I, I feel confident in my abilities to, to help others. There's a phrase or a quote, should I say, that I think it was originally um, attributed to Anne Frank, but I don't know if actually it's what she said, um, but it goes, um, the dead receive more flowers than the living because uh, regret is more powerful than gratitude. I thought that was like mic drop. So that's just it, is that we have the ability, whether it's changing the work week of the firefighters nationally to allow them the rest and recovery they actually need, you know, whether it's positively putting, you know, I would love to see five counseling sessions as part of that probationary six months, you know, get rid of polygraphs and psych tests because they do absolutely nothing. Take that budget, that money, put it into, you know, five, six counseling sessions. If you're bringing stuff into the job, which most of us do, you're going to have an opportunity to offload that. You're going to normalize the mental health conversation at the front door and you're going to have a relationship with an individual. So you're not going to get to play EAP Russian roulette five years into your career. Right. I even think, you know, and I, I just saw Travis House. Um, I think I told you I saw him uh, like a month ago, and uh, this is my first time seeing him or hearing him. And uh, and you know he he spoke about you know like why don't departments have like SOPs for mental health? He goes, we have you know procedures like when a hurricane comes you know comes into town, what those procedures are, where you're to report, who you report, and so forth. Why isn't there SOPs for mental health issues? Listen, if you're feeling, you know, in a way or something is going on, these are the SOPs that you need to follow. And to, you know, listen, is everybody going to adhere to them? Okay, they're guidelines. But at least it puts it out there that we're taking this seriously and that we are trying to do whatever we can to make sure that when somebody is in need, that they know that they're they're not alone, and that they have an opportunity to get help and, and the backing. You're you're not going to get everybody. Unfortunately, it's going to continue. But you know what? To me, it's I rather say too much than to say too little. You know, until suicide stop, until which it's not going to. As long as the fire service or first responders, military, as long as people are going to be suffering in some way and there are people taking care of those people that are in need, there's always going to be that opportunity for people to suffer mentally, which is fine. But we need to have the resources available and to make it a to take away that stigma and make it it's acceptable to have a problem and now here's how we deal with the problem and to not make it effective um in a, in a detrimental way uh or have a detrimental effect on your life 
it's a process. It really is. Absolutely. Well, we've been chatting for over two hours now, so which is which is I fantastic. Got too. I'm, I'm good. <laughs> so I'm sure people listening would love to kind of learn more, reach out. So where are the best places for them to do that online? Uh, they can reach me at my uh, my email. My personal email is flfr seven six five at gmail dot com. So like FL like Fort Lauderdale Fire Rescue seven six five at gmail.com um yeah and I, I would i'd love to hear you know feedback and responses from people um you know i would love to you know if need be i would love to come and speak uh in person to you know whomever if, if it's a you know group of firefighters ems corrections you know you name it um if there's something i could do to help another person reach out and, and, and I'll definitely uh, do what I can. Brilliant. Well, Jason, I want to say thank you so much. I mean, you've led us through from, you know, some some childhood events, which a lot of people bury down and, and feel shame about. But the more I've done this podcast, the more that is prevalent, especially in our male responders and, and members of the military. So this is another elephant that we got to, you know, address in the room, pull out the shadows and talk about you know, whether it's childhood trauma because you feel unloved as a child simply from a, a parenting point of view, whether it's sexual abuse from, you know, a vicar or a scoutmaster or a martial arts teacher, um, you know, th there's these are the things that we need to talk about as well but then you know leading us through and being vulnerable and transparent about the anger you know the impact on your family um it's been invaluable so i want to thank you so so much for being so courageous today and telling your story no you're welcome and i, and I appreciate you very much for giving me the opportunity your uh, your podcast is amazing and uh and I'm glad you, you allowed me the opportunity. I hope it does uh, reach out to people. And I look forward to, to hearing more of your podcast. And, and I and bless you and your, your family. I appreciate you.